Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I'm extremely fortunate, and it's as if by fate because I only realised this morning that two years ago today, I was on my way to meet this person to record episode 11 of the Rodcast, and I am with Kwesi Atham. Hello, Kwesi, how are you doing? Hello, Rod Turner. I mean, firstly, it's just uncanny, because, yeah, like, before you sent it to me, it didn't even strike me that it was two years ago. But also, I think one of the things we probably talk about, if I think back to this point in January. It's scary that it's two years, isn't it? It's scary. It seems, it seems like it was six months ago. But also what's happened, it feels like a whole different lifetime ago. Yeah. We met, last time we met in my office. Yeah, in yeah, Canary yeah. Wolf. Yeah. Lots of people around, busy, bustling day. Yeah, well, and just before everyone kind of got sent before. home from work, really, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah, a lot has changed. And it's just so uncanny that to the day we can basically recollect. I know, amazing. Well, I, I guess so. last time we kind of talked a bit about investment into the UK, what was happening there. We talked about some of these big businesses that seem to be going downhill like WeWork into, yep. which clearly has kind of escalated and, and went really badly. And uh, and yeah, we talked about kind of some property kind of trends and things like that yep. as well. So I guess a good place to start is, well, what's happening at the moment with kind of investment into the UK? Have, have things changed from your point of view, obviously, to give everyone a bit of a kind of background to you if they haven't? Well, first thing is go and have a listen to episode 11. But if, yep. they, if they haven't listened to that and they don't know who you are, do you want to give a, a brief kind of intro as to what you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm in property, like I'm sure a lot of people are listening and I operate mainly, well, pre-pandemic was mainly in the HMO sector, but we've been doing a bit of strategizing and, and tenant type changing. But also I work professionally in finance and I work in strategy these days, more focused on sustainability and sustainable finance within the investment banking sector. So that's kind of my profession, but an entrepreneur on, in property as well. So I have a kind of interesting purview across both worlds. Yeah, because you definitely, it's, it's always good to talk to you because you have an interesting view from the large kind of institutional money from from where you work but also from the kind of more direct investment yeah. very small yeah. basically no money like i have yeah so large institutional <laughs> money like i work and no money like i have and i, I have to basically advise clients who are multi-trillion dollar pension funds and then try and figure out how I'm going to do that on my pennies. But isn't that funny because that kind of brings up another point where uh, how to invest billions and billions of, of, of dollars or pounds is very different for a organization that has a balance sheet where that's actually probably still quite a small proportion of their yeah. of their of their kind of wealth whereas for individuals it's very different so i do think this is a common trend that a lot of people who work in finance really do struggle to kind of take what they're doing for institutional large kind of cap money and bring it into a more personal kind of way because it's a totally different ball game isn't it and different rules and and different kind of and different ways of making a margin i guess yeah yeah that's a great point that's a great point Rod. I think I might go as far as to say 
the majority of people struggle mm-hmm. to make that transition. Even, you know, people who work, I guess there's two levels to it. People who work with institutional money, working on a different scale, it's difficult to then think, okay, how do I do that on a monthly basis with smaller sums? And if I don't have access to those same type of products, how do I execute that strategy? You know, like you might be advising holistic strategies around bonds, um, government bonds, for example, but how do you replicate that if you're doing it for yourself? Well, I think, I think this is a really, we hadn't planned to talk about no. it, but I think we're going to talk about it for a while because it's a good, good subject. But I think what's interesting is it can, you can kind of, you can, you can look at it as from an institutional portfolio construction aspect, really what you're looking at is to not lose wealth, you're looking at wealth, wealth preservation, preservation, but you're also looking at some form of income. So for example, pension funds need to pay out their annuities yeah. and things like that. Whereas from an individual approach, you're looking at, it, it could be the same way. It could be you're at retirement, you're trying to hold that weight, wealth, you're trying to, I don't know, it could even be you're a small family office kind of scenario where there is an aspect of, of maintaining that wealth and maybe having some form of kind of fixed income asset to or fixed income part of the portfolio to pay yourself. Now, the, the other element... School education and... Yeah, exactly. And, and the other element of it is... I think when you're not at that wealth preservation mode and you're just trying to build your wealth up, yeah. I guess you're more of a private equity approach to things. Yeah. And I think that's where people kind of struggle when they come in from the finances. They're focused very much on risk and actually not losing money. And um, we'll go, okay, actually what's more important is let's go low risk. Let's make a sustainable return, like a 4% yield every year. But if you're doing that and you look at, I don't know, what your outgoings are as a family household, and let's say for argument's sake it's 100 grand a year, 4% yield, you've got to have £4 million pounds of wealth exactly. to, to have that going at retirement when you're stopping working for kind of time for money and things like yeah. that. So exactly. up until you get to that point, you can't follow that methodology because it's not going to get you to where you're actually you trying to. to get to. But most people don't actually understand what you've just described, I think, because but this, the, the one side of it is that they just aren't able to translate it in the way that you've just described. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think people know it, but it's, struggle to kind of bring it to Yeah, there's a reality. phrase that I like, to know and not to do is not to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right, people know it, but they don't do it. So exactly. yeah, they might yeah, as well yeah. not know it. But the other, I think the other point, though, is that there's a mindset element to it as well. So as you described, you might look at it as a private equity. I might even go further and say it's more like venture capital or angel investing. Well, well, <laughs> I think it depends a bit, doesn't it? So I, I, I'm going to talk about the property space. Mm-hmm. And in property, the fantastic thing about kind of residential property, if we just stick to that for a minute, is that it can act. You can have it act as a fixed income proportion yep. of your portfolio. You can have it act as private equity portion of your portfolio. You could even have it as a, as a commodity. You can have it act as venture capitalist in a way where maybe you're looking at, I don't know, buying something with a planning game, kind of hoping that this is going to explode into, I don't know, turn a house into a block of flats or something like that. Exactly. So there, there's a few... I, I, I still think that's probably more private equity, but anyway, let's, but I think let's it's not very, split hairs. No, but, you know, for me, that's why I got into property. Yeah. So, you know, having, you know gainful employment as they call it and having the option to just be comfortable in that swim lane sure 
or doing what you've just described. But then there's various things that you can do, various ways you can do it. But I think property is just one option. But I think this is the thing. It's property is the type of asset and really what it is is it's a private equity play because it's a business it's a business and that's what people forget if you're just putting it into an asset you're thinking right there's fixed income i don't no. know it might i think that's the mistake a lot yeah. of people make as well because they get into property thinking that they're going to get passive income quote unquote yeah, yeah but it's a business but, but back to the point right so for me going into property one of the reasons why i wanted to do that is because there were so many different plays mm-hmm. so even even taking one asset one house you can acquire it and you can do so many different things with it across different periods in time. Absolutely. And and this is kind of goes back to that point of the wealth preservation versus wealth building. If you're making 4% a year, you, it's going to take you a while to get up to that pot of 4 yeah. million that you might need if your outgoings are 100 grand a year come retirement. And remember, retirement can be next week or in 50 years time. It's exactly. up to you. Yeah, it's just when you stop living Definitely. from your your income from your job exactly if we say that or your salary i guess then what happens is okay people need to understand the risk a little bit better because mm-hmm. actually what you probably need to be doing is building your net wealth by i don't know more like 15 to 20 percent a year exactly to be able to well, obviously also it depends think, on your starting point and your t- length of time but also it depends on you need to understand how much risk you need to take well, in order to be able to this, average out a 15 percent well it's not but let's remember we're not going and investing in a bunch of stocks in which case we if we were you're absolutely right but there's something else that can affect the level of it, of reward, so the level of return, and it's normally you take on more risk for the yeah. opportunity to hopefully get a bit more reward, uh, return, or you can put in more effort and more skill set uh, and more capability to engineer the return out of it. But yeah. essentially what you're doing is you're taking your time out of the secured income of a, of a job and you're putting it into something that's... Which a is a risk bit, in itself, yeah, and that's, that's exactly it. So that yeah. risk-return profile... I think just coming back to a point that you made, the when it comes to property, you can look at it and you can take a house that's basically derelict and you can do renovate it. Once you renovate it, you can either hold on to it to rent it out, you can sell it for a capital gain, or you can go and find something that's purely polished, has had all the work done, mm-hmm. and buy it. It's already tenanted, it's already yielded. Buy it and hold it and just make sure you get that recurring income because of the location, because it meets the criteria. But I think criteria. this is another point. I think too many people focus on the income. And actually, it's about what you're trying to achieve. So if mm-hmm. you're trying to achieve actually a nice big, I don't know, let's use that same example of a four million pound pot come retirement, mm-hmm. then you're looking at it and going, well, where is most of my gain going to come once I come to retire? And let's say, for example, I'm going to retire in 20 years time. Okay, at that 20 year point, I've got 20 years of income, but also I've got potential capital uplift. Yeah whether that's engineered capital uplift from my effort I'm putting in or whether it's the market uplifting the capital. And hello, everyone. I, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge 
with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between 6 and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in, other, in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do. Provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. And you're just going to buy it off them and then receive an income. Well, is, I mean, there's ways to trade those too. You can, you can, you can package them up. Yeah, securitize. You can build, build to a yield, yeah. securitize that, exactly. then sell it off to a bigger but fund. I think yeah, to the, to the point, right? So if you're looking at it from a, if you're working in finance, you see a lot of these and they've been happening actually for a long time, slowly and slowly. They've been growing with it's legal in general or people like that. Mm-hmm. They've been buying these assets to securitize them, to put them into their pension fund and guarantee mm-hmm. that income. And it, do you know what? Sorry, I'm going to go off at a segue here. Because <laughs> point that I need to make but this is a big thing that a lot of people kind of struggle I think to get their heads around when certainly when I talk to people at kind of networking events and things like that is is understanding that residential property which is starting to get huge amounts of investment flowing into it I'm sure we'll speak about this later from institutional money is being seen as a fixed income play now, it's seen as a fixed income play when they've got a 1,000-plus units of it. Yeah. When you've got 30 units, it's not going to be seen as a fixed income play. It's more onto that private equity side. And the reason behind that is, let's say you've got a 1,000 properties dotted around London, for example. Yes, you might have, I don't know, 2% of a, either in voids or arrears yeah. or under maintenance and all can be in there. Okay, so with a thousand, that's that's twenty properties. Yeah. Okay, it's not really going to hurt, and you, but on thirty, that's a, that's a big chunk. I mean, bring and that down to that what is it? I think five is what the average landlord owns. Well, I think it, I think it's four point two. There now, you go. But but, <laughs> but, but, but yeah. bring it that to that number, and then it's the same. It's the same point. Yeah, so when absolutely. you're talking at that level, one void is going to hurt well, you. It's these idiosyncratic risks. So yes. let's say you've got two identical houses on the same street. An idiosyncratic risk could be, I don't know, you've got a pain in the ass tenant who can't leave and won't pay, or one has a fire and you didn't have the right insurance. Yeah. 
things like that that can and affect it and I mean, actually yeah. I, I know from i know a lot of those from experience because i have a uh, property on the same streets on parallel mm-hmm. streets and it's so amazing how one even, can do really well and the other can it's, be disaster. it's just complete yeah. so actually i recently i sold one of my properties which was in fact the first one i ever bought and it was on a parallel street to one that I, the most recent one that I bought. <laughs> and it's just totally exactly. different. And this is why fixed income will buy a thousand properties at a yield, I don't know, of 4%. Even less, 2.5%. But, but if you're looking at actually um, selling 30 properties, you probably wouldn't get, I don't know, 5 or 6%, depending no. on where they are. Exactly. Uh, and, and people kind of do struggle a bit yeah, to yeah. realise that the value to you of something is going to be very different to the value Definitely. to someone else of that same thing. Yeah. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, it's more, in people, I think it's about understanding what your goal is and what you want out of it. And, At institutional level, they have totally different goals. So if we are looking at it to a client advising corporates working at the investment banking level versus what I'm doing, yeah. the goals and objectives are totally different. But it's about that transition. How do, how do we look at whether it's the property sector? So, for example, moving on to property a little bit. Yeah. If you look at recent times, office space, for example. Yeah. There's been a lot of change in the last two years since our last conversation. Wow, yeah. Has there, I mean, you're, you're based in Canary Wharf. I am, and I am, and I was. How many kind of, I don't know, I don't know how many office desks your your bank has in Canary Wharf. But yeah. I imagine two, not many of them are very full up. No, I mean, even, I think... Even two years old. Even, I think even, so if, I, if I'm right, I think across Canary Wharf, occupancy rates at the peak, even when they returned over the summer, never really went past 30%. Mm, nuts. Which is just crazy. Yeah. And so... But what's even crazier is prime office yields are at the lowest they've ever been and they're trading at the highest values they've ever done in, in London. Yeah. However, secondary offices, so out on the yeah, suburbs, are, are just having a nightmare. And so should well, we discuss the reasons maybe behind that? So Google just uh, bought 780 million. For 780 million. They're also building an office. Mm-hmm. So, so this is where I think there's a massive kind of difference in, and this kind of goes hand in hand with sustainability yep. uh, and things like that. So, I guess one of the questions I, I wanted to ask you is, and I'll get back onto why this is relevant to the offices in the set, but is the investment in ESG within property? Is it proportional yet for the return you'd make on it? And I guess that's an open-ended question because on the short term, I'd say it's probably not, but on the longer term, maybe. But it seems seems like as I spend money on kind of sustainable, energy-efficient things, it costs me far more than the return I get back. But I'm also thinking if I don't do it, yeah, it's so let me reverse, let me yeah. reverse that question. And so this is a great point. And the way that I look at this, not just across property, but across the whole ESG conversation, we often look at it in, the, in terms of the cost of ESG. It's costing us more to do things sustainably. Yeah. The thing that people don't appreciate is the discount factor that should be applied to existing. Well, I think this has this is comes back to what an investor's time frame is for how long they want to be in that in that asset but then i guess maybe that doesn't matter to a point let's say for example i bought a property or i was developing that property and i thought do you know what i'm going to develop this out at a e uh, a d rating of yeah. an epc okay so we know that in two years time 
it will have to be a C if the government yep. gets its way. But let's say I wanted to flip it, okay, and I'll be in and out of it within 18 months. Yes. Now, is the cost it's going to cost me to do that, am I going to see that back? I mean, other buyers, yeah, they might be thinking, oh, God, we've got to do something. But I wonder, I'm not sure. If you're a short-term thinking yeah. developer, then I agree with yeah. you. I think that in the short term, if you're a developer, you're thinking, I need to develop this in the next 24 months and flip it. Mm. The, from the buyer perspective, so the question really that I'm well, saying... I think maybe a D is probably irrelevant, but it would you'd probably have to make it a C, C. even now. But yeah. C to B, I think... Where do you think? think do I do those changes? Yeah. I mean, yeah. even as a landlord, it's the same. Do you, where do you, you know, uplift your properties to? But it's, this is the question. So at the moment, I'm thinking myself even in terms of how much will it cost me to do those changes? Mm. But the real question I should be asking myself is how much of a discount will buyers or tenants or whoever apply yeah. in the future if I don't make those changes because that's the bit that we don't know um, if I, if also on that point let's say it comes back to essentially everything you're doing is about securitizing income if you're selling investment properties yeah. is what people think they can get so the other point um, is maybe about how reliable that income is going to be so if you have to market a unit are you going to I, get the I, same are you income. Get someone in there quickly. Even even if you're at the height of the market, you is might, someone going to come yeah. quickly? Are you going to get the yeah. same rate of income from them as the next door property? This at a different rate. That's my question around what discount will be applied because you don't know what those numbers are. So you can the thing is we can visualize the cost because it's, it's a tangible number. It will cost you this much more to get sustainable materials. What we can't visualize is the discount that someone will apply in the future to our properties compared to equivalent ones next door that have done those things. If I apply this to uh, financial markets, actually, so, you know, financial companies have balance sheets, all of those balance sheets have assets which are either valued or discounted based on different things. The value of the quality of those assets on the balance sheet, at the moment, they apply certain ratings to it. And so even if you're adding sustainability to it, you think, okay, this might cost me more, but at least I'm not applying a discount or a haircut to this. In the future, I expect that the other stuff on the balance sheet will receive a bigger discount. So today your balance sheet might be worth 100 million. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow those same items could be worth 50 million. Yeah, just yeah. because the discount applied to them has been increased. Nothing has changed on the underlying asset. Yeah, yeah, course, just yeah. the discount applied has changed. And I think that's the bit where in the future that's going to hit people. And that type of thing will happen very suddenly. Because mm -hmm. one day people will wake up and it's almost like a crash in the, in the stock market. They'll say, actually, wait, is this really value? No, we need to discount it. We need to discount on our balance sheet. We need to discount how much we and, say it's worth to us. And this is where I think those prime office locations, which are quite illiquid because the people yep. and organizations that are going to buy those, like Google, things like that. I mean, that Google deal has been going on for about four years. Exactly. Um, and these people have a much more long-term outlook yep. because even if they're going to change offices, that decision is very, very slow um, yeah. to even make the decision and then to come to fruition. So they are in it very, very much more long for term. the long term. Very much. Whereas the secondary market, I think, is a bit more short term. Definitely. That's where they're seeing so some of these concerns. And, and, and just going back onto your Googles and your, your real blue chip kind of monsters, I think there's a massive element of tick boxing for them because they've got to be, for example, carbon neutral. And if they're not carbon neutral on their office it means they've got to be carbon negative somewhere else in the business for them to yeah. take the box so that it's it's almost not worth them even looking at it yeah um, carbon offsetting is another thing whereas the smaller businesses although they're pretty big 
won't have that kind of in, in no the, definitely so. i mean so for example a lot of the rules that these companies like google um have to abide by apply to companies called large well the criteria are um large companies publicly listed or um, national interest companies or companies that have more than 500 employees yeah so for those type of companies it's really important because they have to do additional reporting, whether on a voluntary basis or yeah. on a mandatory basis, about their carbon offsetting well, hold on. Even, and lending even, to these sectors. Even companies now with over 20 employees, it's either 20 or 25 employees, now need to start giving yeah. an annual So that's what we're well, going so, to. Yeah. So I think for people like Google, these requirements aren't new. So they've been, when they're making these long-term decisions around yeah. what they do. But also actually a point I wanted to touch on, when we talk about the changes in the pandemic or the trends post-pandemic, these office spaces that the companies have. The thing is, whereas before a company in Canary Wharf would have 10,000 employees in the building, yeah. now they will have 3,000 employees in the building, mm -hmm. but they will still have that building with those 3,000 yeah, employees. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the desk space. As it They'll have more space. Person, They'll yeah. maybe have more larger meeting areas. We're in amenities. This, more amenities. Got to, you know. Basically, what, what it seems like is they've got to entice people out of their house. Well, I... <laughs> There, there's, there's, so I would, I would actually describe this, and I was, I was doing some analysis on this. I'll describe this in three ways. They're the people who they need to entice because well, it's the war on talent again, isn't it? Yeah. So they're people who this new lifestyle suits them. Yeah. You know, I have a really good friend of mine actually who's we'll touch on this right now, but he's enjoying this new work from home because he works in tech. He clearly doesn't have kids, does he? Oh, he does. <laughs> he does. But the best thing is, he, not only does he have kids, so he drops his kids off in the morning, comes home, and does no work up until midday. <laughs> He spends most of that time working and researching NFTs and he's making tons of money from NFTs on the side and he doesn't start work until the afternoon, works later. So, you know, now he works his own schedule. He doesn't have to be at the desk at 8.35. But I think flexible working is certainly a thing that, I think that they're two different things. Flexible working, 100% here to stay. So they're the people who are keen to work flexibly going forward. They're the people who are flexible working, actually. Let me go back. Flexible working. There's a difference between working flexibly, working in the office, working at home, working different times yeah. versus only working from home. Mm -hmm. So the people who only want to work from home never want to go back to the office ever again. Wow. Actually, I have, a, I have a colleague right at the, before the pandemic started. One of my colleagues had just bought a house somewhere mm -hmm. near Peterborough, I think. Right. And they had a two hour commute each way to work. But they were fine with this because they just bought this lovely house, lots yeah. of land. That was going to be interesting. They bought this, I think, at the end of February. And then the pandemic happened in March. The same colleague now owns cows, sheep, pigs, geese. She has a farm. Yeah. She's never coming back to the office. This is, this is a colleague who, before the pandemic, I used to try and have to convince to that you know, it was a good idea for our team to work from home. Now she's telling me that we never, ever need to work in the office. And I guess it's so industry specific, isn't it? But like on the whole, what I found is most people would say they're keen to leave, I don't know, the urban areas for for more space. But when it came down to it, the actual amount of people I found, I didn't see them actually voting with their feet. Yeah. They would kind of talk a good game, but then when it came down to it, and I think that's because where people live is not, is not wholly based on where they work. I agree, 100%. It's like, it's all the other bits of Family, yeah. amenities. And I agree with you so much because I think I myself might be the same at the start of the pandemic. I, also, I think a lot of people who were going to do that did that right after the end of the first lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So in the first sort of 12 months of that period, people who were going to move, moved. Others like me who thought about moving and a few friends of mine thought about moving, decided actually I'm not going to move yeah. and stuck with it. And I actually realized that exactly. the reason why I live where I live is yeah. not just because of exactly. work, it's actually because my sister, my yeah, mom yeah, and my yeah. other sister live nearby. Yeah. And I don't want to leave that. So I think th so the, the second category of people really are the people who want to go back to the office, but want to work flexibly. So the first is the ones that don't want to go back at all. Second is the ones who want to go flexibly. And I'm probably in that category. Mm -hmm. I wanted that actually, and I have been doing that since 2009. Three days a week in the office, ideal, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, Facebook often reminds me, and I'd forgotten, but I've been working remotely since 2009, and I'd yeah. work one day, two days here and there. That's more my category. I think the third category are the people who are desperate to get back to the office for one reason or other, full time, sort of back to the old normal. And I think that's where there is going to be a lot of friction. I think I think that comes down to industry specific, so doesn't it? Because there's somewhere you need to kind of be in there for, I don't know, the work culture, the learning, because not everyone's going to be at a particular level. There's going to be an... I mean, I think the irony is that those two are the reasons why people are not going back to the office, even though I agree with you. Yeah. I feel like if I work with some of my younger colleagues, new people who've joined our team, I think it would be great if we could interact. But that's, for some reason, not proving to be that valid. I think people who have to be in the office are the only ones who, for some reason, are being allowed. People I don't know what the whole culture of it. I know in Canary Wharf it's slightly different, but you go to the West End now, and it's weird, isn't it? How everyone's the chosen same. their days to be in the office are Thursday, Thursday, Friday. Friday. Yeah, because it's the the after drinks. After it's exactly the same, and so we, therefore, <laughs> at least for some of us, we don't get that option. We get the yeah, time yeah, randomly. Yeah, yeah. But I think mo the main reason now that people are finding for going back to the office is more because they're being forced to. And that's why you're getting these things like resignations. Yeah, resignation. well, yeah, yeah. I know lots of companies, especially in America, but definitely filtering through Europe who are struggling and they have mm -hmm. loads of vacancies. Well, yeah, I know, I know we had a conversation recently with a friend saying now's the best time to look for a different job if yeah. ever you thought... Exactly, change career. Well. It's yeah. a great time for that. Yeah. People who are... Like I say, so if you, if you want to work flexibly, your company won't let you. Well, guess what? There's a company that will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think companies need, well, are learning probably quite fast that they do need to be flexible. Exactly. But or you, they need to offer much better options uh, to the, to the staff. Yeah, I think that, that's the key. It, really. I think so for me, the, when we come back to the point, the key is hybrid working. The key is having different options available yeah. to you, being able to start later, being able to work from multiple locations. And so then touching on the secondary site locations, I guess... The challenge there is that a lot of them are really standalone locations in industrial parks or in city centres. I think there's, there's, you've got those kind of, those areas where, and again, it depends what the office is for. If you're talking kind of like small serviced office, kind yep. of working type spaces, if they're in market towns, suburbs, where you get a lot of kind of small business owners living, then I think they're going to start yeah. to really... Do yeah, quite well. I think that you touched on the point though, because like the the thing that is for me is missing in those locations is the social element. Yeah, Canary yeah. Wharf, the hub locations as they're known. You know, the yeah. reason why Canary Wharf was set up was was, was to be that exactly, social yeah. location. It's not yeah. just somewhere where you go do your job and then get on the train. You meet people, meet people from other banks, and that actually has been shown to help grow companies. Mm. If I have to, like now, if I wanted a new job and I wanted to interview, I wouldn't have to take two hours out of my day to go somewhere. Can I walk? I could take 15 minutes and go somewhere, yeah. come back. The talent transition, that all helps. In those locations, you don't get that. You don't get the networking events. You don't get, you don't get the people who are from the same industry mm -hmm. being able to collaborate. 
you don't go to the coffee shop and meet someone here over here conversation about something relevant to you those i think so that makes them struggle to replicate what the office space now what you can do is you can have google office in um king's cross or wherever where you have loads of space loads of coffee shops you don't have to get on a crowded train because there's nobody on the trains anymore so actually the propositions increase i guess how they almost started that was to the idea behind it, and I, I don't know whether this is true, but I can see why it would be thought that was was to keep them keep people in the office for as long as possible, so they yeah. didn't want to go home. So they'd have well, to gym, they'd have to I mean, it's, it's interesting. So I think that in banking, that's the case. Yeah. Although I don't necessarily think that's the case for technology. Technology firms, maybe I'm wrong, but technology firms seem to take more of a well-being approach mm-hmm. now. And then in banking, that trend started like 20 years ago yeah, when yeah, they started yeah. playing gym. Back then, it was more like, let's keep them in the office as long as possible. Why do you need to go home? There's a gym downstairs, you know. Whereas for more for Google, it's more about the well-being, I think, and having their employees in a place where they, you know, Google, I think they have 20% time, things like allowing staff to do whatever they want for 20 minutes of their time and work on personal projects. So I think they take much more of a well-being approach than maybe some of the other companies in the world out there. Yeah, it's, 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 it's super interesting. So going kind of, Back on to like where we left off last time. We talked. We talked about kind of investment into the UK. Yep. Where do you see? How do you think the UK is doing in relation to kind of the rest of the world? Where That's a big is question. Money, where is money kind of flowing into the UK? How, how do you think things are are there? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is Brexit, mm-hmm. which is very important, but also the pandemic and. Foreign direct capital flows into the UK and where they've been going. Property, we take property, for example, there was a massive fall in FDI into property, at least at the start of the pandemic, but that's picked up. As as the wealthy have got more wealthy, we've yeah. seen a lot more. As initially we saw, you mentioned earlier, you know, capital prices in prime locations haven't fallen mm-hmm. because a lot of foreign money has been going into it, even though the yields have fallen massively. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was lots of people... In fact, on the, arguably the reason yields have fallen is because yeah, people have been, but, yeah. Yeah. but also I guess a lot of people left and the rental prices fell. But even that has been recovering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, to at least to pre-pandemic. So I think from a UK perspective, the UK is always appealing. And actually, to be honest, the UK has been undervalued because of Brexit, yeah, yeah. Uh, because of the pandemic, for probably since 2016. Mm-hmm. GDP fell. We went from being the fifth or the fourth. Um, largest nation in the world yeah exactly so people have been discounting us massively so in that sense i see massive opportunity in the uk i think there there are challenges i mean actually take a step back one of the other areas i think there's huge opportunity for us in the uk is in technology um, venture capitalist money coming into the uk um, fintech or everything tech yeah everything tech health tech fintech prop tech all of these sectors have been growing massively even during the pandemic one of the downsides of, of, of Brexit is the reduction in talent and the movement of talent because you now need a visa to travel across the UK. But on the flip side, one of the benefits of the pandemic is that you now know that you don't need to be in a country or in a location to work there. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, we haven't touched on, but one of the things that we've seen in this country is the wages have been going up. Construction is, is for different reasons because the, the demand has been going up and shooting up. But for, for skill sector, services sector... Um, salaries have been going up because now you need, it's, you, everything is um, geolocation agnostic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know... <laughs> well, this is, this, is, and this is kind of why in, I think it was 2014, I started investing in, in Salford, 2014, 2015, because yeah, it was a lot of London city, a lot yeah. of London salaries, sorry, 
were moving exactly up there. the BBC moving house on. prices kind of based on affordability and all that kind of stuff. Definitely, so, um, I think there's absolutely you're hundred percent. And then I guess the next question I'd say is, well, what what people or what countries maybe, and I'm probably lead, this is a leading question because I'm really talking about kind of Hong Kong and the and the kind of visas that have been uh, issued and, and are getting issued and the pool of people there, which is kind of, I think there's 5.2 million that are that are kind of able to get the, these visas to the UK. So the, this morning I had a, one of my, um, the, a child in my daughter's class, their parents are two people who came over from Hong Kong yeah. three months ago. And literally this morning I had a pretty long catch up with them over their own situation. And yeah, I mean, these are highly skilled the guy's great. They're really lovely people. Yeah. Their kids are awesome. The daughter is super smart. You know, this is what we're going to import. Exactly. So we're getting amazing, yeah. highly skilled talent. I was talking to the guy. He used to work for a hedge fund. He's, he's highly skilled. His wife is highly skilled. His children are highly smart. So from a talent perspective, those, I think that's the downside for me of Brexit because now obviously Hong Kong is a very special case, mm-hmm. but we don't have the opportunity as a business, for example, to manage that. We have to go through the process of trying to find a visa. Whereas before, if we found someone that was highly skilled, we could yeah, bring them yeah. on board very quickly, you know, and manage that and help grow the business, help grow UK GDP, which ultimately is the goal. But, I mean, I guess the flip side is Brexit in itself creates opportunity. I'm, I myself, I'm working a lot on European regulations and European items, European legal entity. We've had to set up a European entity with lots of staff and jobs, etc., that might have not had to be required but that it's not a zero sums game so that's created opportunities for me so six of one half a dozen of the other here and there so it sounds like you're quite positive on the uk's outlook and it seems like there seems to be a lot of money flowing into it i think there's money flowing into it we talked about the tech sector the other element that there's money flowing into which we haven't really talked about is the new tech if you like the things around AI, the metaverse mentioned nfts i think facebook changed its name to meta microsoft the other day bought activision which is a gaming company and there again they're looking at actually i think on the way here this morning i saw twitter have announced and I, this, I'm going to geek out for just a few seconds. If you don't know, you won't know. But Twitter announced that they're going to allow you to use an NFT as your Twitter avatar, a verified NFT. Now, that's huge. If you don't know, but that's so big. That's almost like Facebook announcing they're going to allow you to upload pictures onto Facebook. And we saw that how that's changed and how big that is. That's the biggest thing on Facebook, uploading pictures. That's the equivalent of Twitter announcing they're going to allow you to upload your NFT as your avatar. So now there's this ecosystem outside of the real world <laughs> called the metaverse. It's in a digital world. And there you can buy digital versions of, it's like a JPEG to represent you. Well, you can buy digital, all sorts of things. So you can buy digital, digital land. land. Digital, a digital household in the central land for half a million dollars. Now, am I right in thinking, because the... <sighs> So I'm trying to get I'm I'm useless when it comes to this sort of kind of tech stuff. But am I right in thinking that the reason people would buy land in the metaverse is because it's they'd be doing it as an investment, and the investment well, is for one the capital appreciation, i.e., people want that land, 
because of kind of two, which is more about the income streams, which can come from possibly advertising and things like that, and that acts as the rent. Is that right? Or that's, I... that's the business-minded approach. But remember that most people are doing this because they think it's cool, not because they're doing it to make oh. money from. Bitcoin, you know, you and I had conversations yeah. about Bitcoin probably like 2016, 2017. Yeah, yeah. Back then, I was looking at it because it was cool, not because I thought that it was going to be worthful. If I had known it was going to be worthful, <laughs> then I would have sold all my property and put well, it in Bitcoin. Well, you say that, but people are still spending an awful lot of money on this, whereas yeah. back then they weren't spending a lot of money. No, on because but so, it's always relative, though. Because yeah. Bitcoin happened, people look at this, and now yeah. they spend more money on this, but it's at the same stage as Bitcoin was. Right, right. And so Twitter allowing you to use a verified avatar is almost like them connecting the real world the, un- the Twitter universe with the so virtual universe. I'm going to ask another question, which might, might make me sound sort of a bit ignorant of it all. But again, I'm probably looking at this with the wrong mindset from a business <laughs> mindset. I can see where people perceive a value to be in something like Bitcoin. Yep. Where... Now, to be honest, Rob, when we were having... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah, but when we were having this conversation in the past, it was the no, same. No, I think I could have perceived... I, I couldn't perceive that why they. I couldn't put the price tag on it. That yeah, of course, yeah. But I could see where like, the value the lies. Payment system, the blockchain. I could sit. I could yeah. understand that. What is the kind of proposition here that an NFT is doing? What What is the problem it's solving? Yeah. What is it trying to achieve? I mean, what the, is the thing it is, that this... people just want to escapism. And... No, that is not that. It's not that. The, the thing is, the NFTs in particular are solving so many different problems, and often they get commingled into different things. Yeah. If I focus on the Twitter piece in particular, this is where you have a piece of artwork that you can use to represent you, mm-hmm. and you pay for it. So you buy it, but you also own it. So you own the rights to it, like owning the deeds to a house. Mm-hmm. So it's not like just a JPEG you've downloaded. So, you, so you're basically you are you are well, gambling or investing with the hope that the demand will increase for what you've got. No, so, not necessarily. Okay. You you are investing in something that is. Remember that they attach value to this. It's like let's say it's like buying a phone. Mm-hmm. If you buy a phone, you don't think the value of the phone is going to go up. You just buy it because you you like the phone. You need the phone. Got features that you like. That's why people buy NFTs. I'll give you another example. There's a Damien Hurst NFT mm-hmm. called The Currency. That one is just a nice digital picture. But the thing that appealed to me about it is that it's Damien Hurst. Yeah. For other people, they but think is that, that... But is that like, I don't know, me trying to explain to my great-granddad or something that, oh, these shoes are worth more because they've got a designer label on them versus something to, else? The, to an extent. But the NFT is worth more because it's got a new bit of tech that allows me to prove that I own the JPEG. Okay, so it's just about proof of ownership. One. So there's many reasons. Yeah, yeah, of course. Proof of ownership ownership is a key one. You're educating me here. No, but but proof of ownership actually is not a function of NFT. It's a function of the blockchain, right? So that doesn't necessarily make an NFT great because of proof of ownership because that's a blockchain feature, not an NFT feature. The NFT feature is being able to take a piece of artwork and tokenize it. NFT is non-functional, non-fungible token. I should have said that at the start, but it's non-fungible, meaning that it can't be exchanged for something else. Crypto is blockchain. Crypto is fungible. One crypto can be exchanged for another crypto. An NFT token is is non-fungible. So that token is non-fungible. Really important when you're talking about things like artwork. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that picture that's up in the Louvre of Mona Lisa is that picture. If I take a picture of it on my phone, I don't all of a sudden have it. 
it's that picture. That's what NFT allows you to prove. Right. So that's it. So the difference, and then to go back to the metaverse, Gucci shoes, and then someone trying to sell you a pair of knockoff ones from no. the market. Okay, so I take that example. <laughs> it's like getting a pair of digital Gucci shoes yeah. that you can wear on your virtual world. Right, okay. But if, if, if I then come visit you, I can't wear those same ones. No, you can't even see them. Yeah, okay. You can only see me when you put on your VR goggles. Oh, right. When we put on the VR goggles, I have those yeah, Gucci yeah, shoes yeah, yeah, and yeah. only I have yeah, them. Yeah. Okay. I'm the only one in this decentraland, yeah. sure. in this half a million pound house, in this virtual land. So, so can you go into this? Can I, I don't know this this land and create a factory that yes. manufactures these Gucci shoes and then start selling those digital? You yeah. can you can yeah. create a digital. So you could get the land, yeah. build the factory, produce digital assets in a digital land in a digital world and sell them. I guess the real world example is what's the Microsoft game with the blocks? Minecraft. Right. So Minecraft is, so without intending, Minecraft is really a virtual world Mm -hmm. with NFTs. Mm -hmm. Even though those terms didn't exist when Minecraft was invented. You go in there, you don't put on a headset, you do it on a computer screen and you use your, but you go in there, you have a character, your avatar, you can buy stuff for that character in this virtual world. Those stuff you buy are NFTs. And that's all it is. The difference is that they want to take the Minecraft world and stop it being one game and make it your whole world. And do you think this is sustainable, this this kind of, I don't know what you call it, industry, movement, whatever it is, do you think it's sustainable as an investable kind of Yes, yeah, I wanted to touch on this, so thank you. The 2020, what's the biggest, most highest achieving asset on the planet? Bitcoin, probably. Virtual land. Really? <laughs> More than 2,500%. Wow. And that was even just a drop in the ocean. Yeah. I think that it's this year is probably going to be another 2,500% on last year. Interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> is it sustainable as an investment? I mean, anybody who bought virtual land last year is laughing their head off. There's one thing about making money yep. in the short term, but and then, so, is, is, it, is, this, is this a long-term trend? Yeah, so then to, to answer that question and actually to come back to your other point around UK, so is it long-term trend? Um, Facebook changing its name to Meta. Microsoft buying Activision, mm-hmm. all they're going to get is basically more content to produce NFTs around. That's the reason they're paying $50 billion for Activision. Mm-hmm. The gaming bit is fine. That's all known. Mm-hmm. That's not the value add. Sure. It's what are they going to do else? They want that content to build NFTs. Okay, so right. And I'm sorry if I'm, I'm not... I'm, no, this is Because it's fascinating stuff. But yeah. If, if then Microsoft are buying this for $50 billion, then they must be looking at... Right. They're looking for a return on that investment. Yes. So how are they thinking of that long-term, sustainable, ongoing income stream that they're going to be getting from the NFTs? That Great question. So for all of, all of this, they bought Activision. Activision, for those who don't know, is a gaming platform. They make things like Call of Duty and Candy Crush. Mm. What Microsoft now can do is take all of that content and tokenize it. Mm-hmm. So if you're playing Call of Duty... Now you can play it in the Microsoft ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You can buy guns. You can buy special armor, special things that only you have. And they right. can tokenize. Because, because so, so, so they're, they're basically thinking that the people playing the games, the gamers, have demand for these types of things. It's the yeah. same way that if we go shopping for clothes, we have a demand for, for certain, certain types of clothes. Yeah. Like buying a, and, the, and none is 
none is more functional than the other. But exactly. But the, like it. Yeah. the difference is that now you go and you can still buy stuff online, but we go into a shop, we all buy random stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, because all of this is non-fungible, there's a whole difference. I'm going to buy something that is me. It's mm-hmm. going to be personal. No, no, no. I, 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 okay, I can, I can totally get that. And then, but then but the, the thing is taking that and then applying it to everything. Yeah, yeah. And if, even, if, even if they're selling... <laughs> so how much... Okay, here's a good question. So if you'd asked me, I know... 10 years ago, would I be having to delete certain apps off my phone because yeah. I waste so much time just scrolling through and doing <laughs> nothing on them? Yeah. I would have thought, what are you talking about? No, of course, that's not going to be a, the new addiction or a new exactly. problem. It's nonsense. Like, should kind of these social media apps really come with a warning like cigarettes do? Like, this stuff will waste your time and kill yeah. your gambling. Like, if you go onto a gambling website, but it's. Is this now kind of the thing that are people going to be spending, instead of spending four hours a day scrolling through kind of Facebook, Facebook. and Instagram and TikTok, are they going to be spending four hours a day in this alternative world? Yeah, it, it, they are. And the, my, my simple answer is they are. They just don't know it yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a bit I, like I, Facebook. I, but I could totally understand yeah. that having looked at past performance exactly, of these Exactly, exactly. And, and I think that's probably and the most so powerful this, thing is, to get me to understand. And this, this yeah. is why Facebook changed its name to Meta. Yeah, so yeah. In, from, their, from their purview, what Facebook was is what the Metaverse will be. Mm-hmm. How people were engaging with Facebook, the amount of time they were spending on Facebook, that's all going to be in the Metaverse. And that's why Mark Zuckerberg has done that. But I, I mean, I think even now, if you look at the people, I always like to look at the people with frontiers, whether it's even property, looking at people like you or people who are doing stuff really at the frontier of property. Same with gaming, same with the gamers. If you look at the people with the frontier that we're going to start copying and it's going to feed through, they're spending four or five hours. They're not on Facebook. They're not on social media. How so, does this help? I don't know the world's productivity. I, I get how it can help it from a balance sheet point yeah. of view, but, but how does it help? I don't know. Minority Report is well, a great example. Yeah. You, I don't know if you remember that movie. Bits of it. But one of the things that I like about the metaverse, actually, once we start actually getting our head around it yeah. and seeing how we can leverage it, is imagine if you're going to do an operation on someone who has got a tumour in a part of their body. Yeah, yeah. Instead of you going in and cutting up their body, you can rehearse in the metaverse yeah. on an actual version of their body that has been 3d scanned and created into a virtual brilliant world. okay so that, go and do that that is a really good example actually which i would never would never have thought of but then i'd probably say well how can they not do that just normally through but does it need to be in the metaverse can it just be on a on a, like on a virtual screen yeah. but it, but they, so at the moment what they do is they would have to visualize it and do it virtually but it is the same technology but just much more inferior right. okay. okay so whereas now in the future You'll be able to go into the metaverse and practice, mm-hmm. learn, study, do whatever, get lessons from Einstein. Okay. So, and it will be real. So I want to kind of bring it back around because I know we're, we're short on time. Yeah. If last last time we spoke, two years ago, we were kind of talking about WeWork and how it was a bloody disaster waiting to happen. And well, it was already a disaster. To the pandemic just went worse and worse and yeah. worse. What are your thoughts on, obviously, like, you've got stocks like some of these big tech stocks, not not necessarily the big kind of seven, but some of the other big tech stocks and valuations are starting to come down. NASDAQ's kind of dropping, albeit yeah. your Facebooks and Google seem to be holding their value. Where, what's happening with those kind of trends? Is it down to the pandemic? Is it down to kind of valuations? Is it down to kind of 
new trends. People I know have seem to have got sick of getting pelotons and now probably <laughs> being used as clothes horses, and, yeah. and their stock price dropped by twenty five percent. And is, is I think that, the, 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 is the peloton that, point though was that different, think, different issues. Here? Yeah, the, exactly. The peloton point though, I think there was rumours that they are having to stop production by about thirty percent. Yeah, because they've got because no they, demand is they and deny that. realizing that actually you can ride a bike two places, which is now. just as good. Yeah. They do, and, and everyone's realizing that a coat a coat hanger or a clothes rack is better than a peloton. Well, and clothes. Probably cheaper as well. Much cheaper. <laughs> but yeah, but I think to your point. So the, the 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 Nasdaq, the problem that it has is that it's very top heavy on very few stock. Is about seven. Well, it's something like thirty percent or twenty-five percent of it is made up with those big ones, but it's not yeah. those big ones seeming to drop massively. No, they don't. But that's why the Nasdaq does so well. Yeah. So often, if you take the the Nasdaq out, if you take the the, the top ten, I think out, Google, Apple, Netflix, Amazon, yeah, yeah then it's yeah. something like the performance is actually quite poor. Yeah, yeah. And so they they make up. But it seems that valuations for some of those possibly poorer companies are still. Very high. Very uh, still coming in at that. But in the, I guess this is where it comes back to what we discussed first, which is about how how likely is the future incomes going to be coming in? From, so yeah, from this definitely need to touch on this point. Yeah. So I think more broadly, right? If you look at the economy, you had um, inflation here, which was at five point four percent. Five point four percent is an average. Yeah. If you look within that, I think that's where it's really interesting. You have things like electricity is up about nineteen percent, gas is up about twenty eight percent. And that's despite the fact that there's a freeze in this yeah. country. Well, and, and the new connections from my latest development for water are up 45% in six months. Yes. <laughs> yeah, see, so I think that inflation is up 5.4%, but that doesn't tell the whole story. I think that 2020 yeah. across the world, the US had something like 8% inflation. Well, yeah, even the US is kind of, I don't know enough about how the UK calculates inflation, but... I know the US has some very odd ways of counting. Yeah, the UK it's does kind of, as well. It's, it's, it's very manipulated on the downside, really. So reality is, for what the majority of the population now have in their average kind of yeah. shopping basket, it's it's far higher than actually. Exactly, exactly. Here, I think when when you looked at it, when we looked at it from a, sh- a supermarket perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it was somewhere between 8 and 10% yeah, yeah. that is costing you your supermarket basket. So I think that's going to be really important. Obviously, it affects incomes, affects affordability of things like rent and, and of mortgages yeah, yeah. going forward. So that could have a massive effect. That is a, a, big, a big concern for me is actually the energy prices because Definitely. that goes into your cost of living. Yeah. That's normally apportioned in. And actually, if they broadband start, prices are going up. Yeah. I read this morning BT are putting up broadband prices by something like 11%, yeah. which is really going to be huge because that, again, that has a knock-on because that means they're probably charging through OpenReach all of the other providers more. So all of their prices are going to go up. So I think that, you know, that's going to be really challenging for someone who manages... Um, property and has tenants the kind of cost basis is going to be really interesting managing that i think there being able to protect yourself with guaranteed incomes based on maybe tenant type is going to be something that becomes more profound going forward whether that's lha or yeah supported well, I mean, living the, or... there's a huge kind of trend at the moment and whether or not there's a bit it's almost entering fad territory is is kind of the social housing side of things yeah I think I think people are going to get a bit burnt on that, whether it's poor providers or, or the providers themselves. But I do I do get what you're saying, and I think what people need to constantly have in the back of their mind is that whole past performance thing. Yes. Just because you used to get eight percent yield on something doesn't mean you shouldn't be 
like happy with five percent yeah, if the average has fallen so much well this is the point it's all about the spread isn't yeah. it if you've always thought that actually the yield from my residential portfolio should be giving me five percent more than the risk-free rate exactly than i don't know these this That's basket of other assets yeah yeah then Maybe yeah, the risk-free rate might have come down, but yeah. as long as my thing is still, still relatively more yeah. than that, or yeah. whatever it is, or five times, or yeah. however you want to calculate it, but it's got to be proportional over time. I think exactly. Whatever is available to you at this point in time is what kind of should be measured on, but with the outlook of the future. Because if yeah. one asset class drops while the other rises, that's where people. Yes, exactly. The relative value. Yeah. 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 Okay. Fantastic. Quasi, thank you so much for coming. It's always like, I always kind of, every time we talk, I just say, <laughs> God, I want another couple of hours of this. Yeah, we definitely have to do the metaverse know, again. Yeah, that yeah. was good. But it's it's fascinating stuff and it's something I know nothing about. Well, so buy think, some virtual it, land. Well, I think, I, think I, might, I might have to have a look into it. I know for like my friends would have thought, what, what do you mean you've got crypto? You don't know anything about this sort of stuff. Quasi, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. Every time we kind of sit down and uh, discuss anything, I find myself wanting another few hours. And you've really educated me on a lot of things today, especially kind of the NFT stuff. Yeah, which, we'll uh, definitely have to do the metaverse again yeah. and, and buy yourself some virtual land. I, I will, because I know when we we used to discuss Bitcoin and cryptocurrency yeah. a lot in t- 2016, 2017, and and just by buying a little bit helped yeah. me kind of understand a lot of it and exactly. it obviously did pretty well but yeah. yeah thanks for coming on and we'll make sure we get you on before another two years <laughs> but we'll have to do it on the same, same day, day. Yeah. exactly I'll put it in my calendar Brilliant. thanks bro thanks a lot cheers